Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast, coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, folks, um, a lot of times we we tend to talk about a lot of the bleeding edge new technologies, and I know. A lot of the listener base loves uh, kind of what's new and shiny and what's going on and uh, keeping up with that. Um, but, you know, the reality for a lot of people, especially in their in their day to day jobs is, you know, you've got to make uh, what you have today work and you've got to kind of have a, a way to get uh, what you have today plus something else, plus, you know, augmenting or changing or whatever, uh, you know, give you a path going forward, right? So how do you how do you keep up with technology? And today, uh, very, very excited uh, to sort of dig into that a little bit more. Um, so today, uh, we've got Burr Sutter, who's Director of Development Experience at Red Hat. Burr, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. <clears throat> so uh, you and I uh, just, uh, you know, for, from a full disclosure perspective, both, uh, you know, day jobs at Red Hat. Um, so we've got that. And you know, I've had an opportunity both before I was at Red Hat and 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 now in in my day job to sort of pick up on on what you work on. So, for anybody that doesn't necessarily know you, give us some of your background, some of the the areas that you're passionate about, and then some of the areas that you're working on these days. Okay. Well, as you said, um, my title, the fancy title I have is Director of Developer Experience, and primarily what that means is for Red Hat is that I focus on ensuring that the developer experience with Red Hat technologies and products and Red Hat itself is as best as it can be. So therefore, if a developer wishes to engage any Red Hat technology, I'm interested in having that conversation and providing that feedback to the product teams. At the same time, I spend a fair portion of my time running around the developer community, specifically the Java community, though I also know a little Node.js and a little .NET also. I primarily focus on the Java community. I'm a Java champion. I ran a Java user group for many years. I started my own Java uh, Java Developer Conference in Atlanta called DevNexus. So I'm very much in tune with the Java community, visiting Java user groups and Java conferences all throughout the globe. Uh, organizations like DevOps is an example. And, and I'll be at JFocus in Sweden here in a few weeks. I'll be visiting Czech Republic, doing the DevConf we have there. So I get out and travel a fair bit, and I love speaking to developers about what's going on in their lives. And I would say my primary passion, my primary mission has been for the last 25 years or more at this point, uh, speaking to developers, encouraging developers, understanding what is challenging them, uh, you know, really, really roadblocks in their way for either a learning curve of a new technology or new technique or understanding where they might be organizationally being outmaneuvered and just trying to support them in any way possible. You know, and mostly I do that through the creation of materials like presentations, demonstrations, lots of demonstrations. If you look at my YouTube channel, you'll see a ton of demonstrations in the worlds of DevOps, IoT, uh, you know, mobile application development, just gen- general Java development and everything in between. Yeah, very, very cool. And we'll, we'll get all that stuff linked in the show notes as well. Um, so, you know, the, the Java community, um, you know, you look at any any uh, survey data, you look at any reports that come out of, you know, what's, you know, what's in repositories in GitHub, you look at what goes on in the marketplace. And, and no matter how many new types of languages come out, whether it's, it's Go or something else, like Java is still far and away kind of the the most you know prevalent uh, application languages out there, you know development languages out there, but Java's gone through a lot of of changes. It's it's still going through a lot of changes, especially as you know people are moving from you know people want to ultimately they want to they want to 
develop code faster. They want to ship it faster. They want it to be better quality. Give folks a sense of like, where is the, you know, where is the Java community these days and, and what are some of the big technology trends that it's kind of uh, trying to, you know, to parse through and consume and, and get better at? Well, you know, it's really funny in the Java community, we recognize that we're the old guard. If you actually show up at a Java user group or Java developer conference, in many cases, you know, the individuals over age 40 at this point, many of us have 10 plus, if not 15 plus years of experience with Java. I started with Java in 1997. So a lot of people like to say, well, Java's dead. And the new thing, whatever the new thing, the new bright and shiny Ruby, Node.js, new Python, you know, the renewed Python, or in this case, Go, right? Go is the new Java killer. And all of these things have not actually killed Java. In most cases, they strengthened Java's presence within the enterprise, within large organizations who have to run mission-critical applications uh, across their backbone. And the reason I think Java has been so not only pervasive, but so resilient to all this other nuance and all this other innovation is Java benefits dramatically from the open source ecosystem that surrounds it. I started with open source in Java, I believe it was 2000 and Two specifically, when I started using Apache Struts, if you guys remember back way back when to Apache Struts, right? That was one of the first big, big projects that kind of blew up the universe for Java and made you know Java vastly richer by adding this open source technology to the Java language and ecosystem. So Java's been uh, an incredibly resilient in the face of change, and what we're seeing now in the market, specifically within the Java community and all these Java user groups and Java conferences, is this concept of microservices has really gotten everyone's attention, right? Oh my God, I got to do some microservices. I would actually say the buzzword is so hot right now. What I tell my audiences is just tell your boss you're doing it already, right? It's totally <laughs> it, because you have to. The, the literally the manager is under so much pressure, you know, IT is under so much pressure from the business and external forces and just internally, you know, with the change and rate of change of software and technology, both in terms of technical aspects, you know, the actual languages and frameworks, et cetera, but also the techniques like Agile and, you know, are we going to use Scrum or Kanban, et cetera. We're under so much pressure right now. It's just easier to tell, you know, everybody, yep, we're doing DevOps and we're doing microservices just just because, you know, yeah, sort of get, get gets them off your back and, and gets them saying, OK, they're they're paying attention to what's going on. And, and for, you know, for the for the, you know, for that manager or that executive that went to some conference and sort of heard that, you know, that's what Uber's doing or that's what so and so is doing. It's disrupting an industry. It gives them gives them a sense. Now, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is um, it's one thing to say you're doing something. It's another thing to to put that into practice. One of the big topics that you often talk about is is just the reality that companies have, which is I have existing applications and, and those tend to get lumped into, you know, called legacy applications. But, you know, more and more, it's it's a monolithic application, especially when you're comparing it to microservices. And you like to talk a lot about, you know, kind of the the mindset, the process, sort of the steps that people take in terms of breaking up a monolith. Give us a sense of what what does that mean? What's the... What's the ideas behind what you're seeing? Because sometimes people get afraid of this idea of, you know, maybe I have to rewrite something or, you know, do I want to mess with something that's already working? You know, don't, don't, don't break it if it's already working kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And I actually see that as the true crux of the problem we're facing right now. It's gotten to the point where microservices are so hot that I actually tell people, just tell people you're doing it already and, and stop talking about it. And, but the problem is, how do you actually do it? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. And and so actually, I'm going to probably entitle this new concept that I'm going to work on teaching elephants to dance. That's my phrase I have for it, because there's actually something noble and beautiful about our big old monolithic elephant 
that we all are five blind men standing around trying to understand what it is. And we really can teach it to dance, and there's actually nothing wrong with that. We should actually embrace our monolith, if you will, embrace our inner monolith and our and our software monolith, because it's a big, beautiful thing that literally runs the business today. In many cases, you know, if you look at the average enterprise, they're running billions of transactions at some of these larger banks or airlines or insurance companies or telecom, whatever they are, through a traditional Java E monolithic application because that's exactly what the Java U specification told us to do. It's been what we've been doing now for literally 15 solid years. So so in that context, right, understanding that we actually have existing monolithic applications and yes, there's all this bright, shiny, I want to be like Netflix or Uber, et cetera, et cetera, in the microservices world, there's actually this middle ground that I think people can fully embrace. And and everyone knows the concept of a middle ground, and I don't want you to think of it as a compromise because compromise, right, it means one plus one equal one, right, or two plus two equal three. Yep. Um, but what we really want is synergy, right? You really want two plus two to equal five, right? You really want something greater than the sum of its parts, if at all possible. And there is a middle ground that is that, and, I, and I've tried to articulate that in my presentations, and it kind of falls into this specific category. If you if you want to embrace the fast deployment cycles of an of a Silicon Valley startup, right? I want to be more like an Uber. I want to be more like a Netflix. I want to have faster deployment cycles. If you're an average enterprise, your current deployment cycle time is probably in the order of six to nine months. When I survey, you know, I go out and speak to hundreds, if not thousands, of developers, and I survey them in many cases and say, how many months to production does it take you to, you know? does it take right now? And for most people, it's easily six months. It's easily nine months. Some cases it was 24 months. Some are super fast. They're three month intervals. You know, every three months they're deploying to production. But what really is happening is you take your, you take your, um, uh, your sprint cycles, right? So if you're following agile, a lot of people do agile now in some flavor, not, not pure agile, let's say, but they're doing two week sprints or three week sprints. And if you connect eight, three week sprints together, in 24 weeks, you do a release, right? That's what a lot of people are doing. Or you can connect six two-week sprints together and 12 <laughs> weeks doing a release. And so I, I see that time and time again. So you actually, if you're clever enough, right, with enough automation, enough technology, leveraging things like Linux containers and Kubernetes and some of the capabilities you have there, leveraging things like the Jenkins pipeline plugin and doing some automation around CI, CD, really getting into uh, unit testing with Selenium or Cucumber and really making sure you have nice testing from that perspective, you can actually automate that process and break up your teams, if you will, to the point where you can actually have a monolith that deploys to production as fast as every three weeks, two weeks, or even one week. And we actually have a whole nice write-up on this on a, on a blog. I worked specifically with the fellow, the consultant who worked specifically on the project, you know, where they went from a three-month deployment monolith to a one-week deployment with the monolithic application. And for a lot of people, that is supernova fast, right? If you think of going from three months to one week, oh my God, right? You know, we are moving so fast compared to where we were. That might be all your business needs at that point. Yeah. So in essence, uh, you know, this, this, this is where, you know, there's times when we get hung up in, uh, you know, what, what, what technology is going to fix the old technology. And, and sometimes it's, uh, we, we kind of forget that, you know, it really is kind of a three-legged stool. It's, it's people, it's process and it's technology. And, and you may be able to kind of tweak one or the other, What you're, I think what you're really saying is um, you may be able to not necessarily have to radically change your technology say today, but, by by wrapping some aspects of of you know better process i e uh you know automated testing um uh, build pipelines that you know get 
uh, either put in place or optimized that maybe weren't there today. Um, and then thinking about, like you said, you know, what if I, you know, instead of thinking about that, uh, you know, four week, uh, sprint times six and getting out going like, what if we, you know, were to ship something halfway through this thing? Is that, are you seeing that more and more of people saying, you know, you know, the analogy being like, well, I'd like to get in better shape and that's going to be eating better plus exercising. Can I just start by maybe eating better, you know, working a salad at lunch? Is that kind of the part of the first step that you're seeing for people that, uh, that are seeing success in this space, you know? fix the things maybe sometimes around the, around the, the core application to make those optimized first? A- absolutely. I think that is really, so I love, I love your analogy there of, you know, I have a new year's revolution. It's new 2017, right? I, I want to lose weight and be more fit. Yeah. There's all these different things you would do, but you can actually take a bite of that elephant, you know, one piece at a time. Uh, and so in the case of this monolithic architecture we have today where we have 50 individuals, let's say, working on that monolithic application, all working together to, distri- you know, to deliver that release in six months or nine months, et cetera, there is a way to decompose that problem, if you will. And it's more about people and process. It's more about the adoption of DevOps principles and philosophies and agile capabilities than anything else. It has you know, very little to do with technology, if you will. And we can make that you know, elephant dance. We can make that monolith move to production way, way faster. Yeah. And, and the other thing I, I tend to hear in this space and, and correct me if I'm wrong is when you start attacking that monolith, you start thinking about breaking it up. Um, you, you know, you hear different approaches to it. Sometimes you'll hear people, uh, reference this, this thing that uh, has come out of ThoughtWorks called like the strangler pattern where you're looking at, you know, a part of that application, maybe it's the authentication element of it, or it's, you know, some sort of front end, you know, caching mechanism or, or something where you said, you know, I could break that off from, you know, being dependent on the application and, and start looking at, you know, where are the things that could be independent? Is that something that, you know, in reality you're seeing happening? And, and if so, what are some of the, you know, tools and technologies that make that possible? So, so in that specific case, one thing I always like to point out to people is that, in order – you really don't actually have to distribute the application and, to, and, and unfortunately live through the fallacies of distributed computing, right? You know, in other words, suffer the pain of breaking up the application into multiple piece parts until you want to break that deployment cycle that is less than a, a sprint, all right? So if your sprint time is two weeks or your sprint time is three weeks, you can be deploying a monolith at the end of every sprint. If you follow Agile, right, that's what yep. you're supposed to do is produce a deployable artifact at the end of every sprint. So two to three week increments um, for deploying the monolith should be should be relatively easy. I know that's a that's quite yeah, relative. Safe. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. But the but if you want to break that, if you want to go below two weeks, below one week and actually get to the Silicon Valley unicorn style, you know, 10 deploys per day, as it says in the Phoenix project. And actually, that's based on an organization called Etsy. When now they're in the 45 to 50 deploys per day based on the last presentation I saw from them. And of course, you have Amazon saying there are a thousand deploys per day. When you're doing many, many deploys per week, to production, many, many deploys per day, that's truly when you've broken up the application into its constituent parts and and created microservices, right? So literally each, if you think of an application really having 25 or 200 components really within it, kind of break all those up into in, independent network addressable, uh, independently deployable functions and components. Uh, and so that's what the microservices architecture brings in. So the, the strategy you have for people who have an existing monolith, right, that existing big old 
elephant that they have to figure out and they really want to break that one week deployment barrier, right? And start doing multiple deploys per week, multiple deploys per day. You then look for the component that actually needs to change more rapidly, more independently. Uh, so an easy one is the authentication one, right? Because most people see that as just a bolt on to their application. We have to have some form of user management, you know, single sign on, OAuth to things change in that universe. You know, we now have to integrate with Google social uh, sign on. Um, Google yeah. social login, uh, Twitter social login, et cetera. So that might be changing all the time, and you might want to change that regularly just because you want to respond to business and market needs. So that's an easy one to pull off into its own separate microservice. And there's actually a technology we promote heavily on the open source side called Keycloak that makes that super easy, right? You know, split all that out, remove all that logic from your existing application, you know, because a lot of people actually have that logic in their existing application, either through Java E right? The specification that we have for most Java applications yep. or spring, spring security, right? Spring security is all embedded within the application too. You can extract that logic into a separate standalone service, a network addressable service that's independently deployable, like Keycloak is an example. And then you could have all that externalized and therefore you can change it rapidly and independently of the overall monolith. And so that, but that concept, as you mentioned, is the strangler pattern, right? That ThoughtWorks has been talking about. The idea that you surround the monolithic application with these independent smaller parts that are independent microservices, if you will, easy to deploy, easy and independently to manage with its own separate two pizza team to organize around it, right? To, to basically manage that little component. And then you keep adding enough components around the monolith that over time the monolith shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And the, the key element of that is the monolith does not change, right? You've frozen it in time, if you will, and you've integrated it uh, with all these other microservices. And and that uh, that does to me be a pattern that people are hearing and understanding and feeling comfortable about. And we're getting more and more case studies coming out from various customers and various users that are out there saying, okay, we, we've applied that. We found that pattern actually on our own. We figured that out on our own and and we've actually added that you know over time to our overall it portfolio yeah do you think we get we get too wrapped up in this idea that you know you need to be thinking about you know microservices and how many microservices you have and you know, lots of people like to talk about uh, we have hundreds we have th- i mean do people get too wrapped up in into that sort of metric versus saying uh, you know, how frequently are you shipping? How well are you, you know, how much better quality is your code getting? Do, do we, do we get ourselves uh, too wrapped around the axle of, of, you know, the, the metrics of microservices versus the metrics of the things that are going to make your business better? Can I say, oh my God, do we get too fo- focused on details that don't matter? <laughs> so, so just like you're saying there with the concept of, oh, how many microservices do you have? It's kind of like, you know, how, how much, how many, how many touch challenges have you made this weekend? It's, it's ridiculous, right? It's, it is one of those metrics that actually do not matter. And the one that was a year ago and before that one was, well, how many lines of code is your microservice? Well, my, you know, I only have a page of code. I only have 1,000 lines of code. I only have five lines of code. It's ridiculous. It's a stupid metric, right? So both cases, neither of those numbers matter in my opinion, right? But at, at the end of the day, what matters most is are you better – faster serving your customer within or outside of your organization, whether it be another employee or another system, another business partner, the actual consumer, if you're B2C, right? If, if you're better serving that end user, that customer, that external partner, 
then you're winning, right? And the only way to be winning in my mind is to be learning. And in order to be learning, you got to be getting to production faster. So the ultimate metric is the fast cycle time, in my opinion. How fast are you getting production? Are you gathering metrics, looking at your logs, running A-B test, and seeing exactly is the user experience or the customer experience or the partner experience getting better or worse? And making that, you know, making that continuous improvement week over week, month over month, year over year, that's what, that's what's going to keep you in the business, right? That's what's going to make you a better IT shop, make you a better software developer, software architect, and of course, make your customers happier. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And it's, you know, the sort of the concept of these data feedback loops and, and how you're interpreting what people are doing, you know, it's, it, it plays on the idea of, like you said, AB test, you know, you start with minimum viable changes, you, you sort of react to what people do. And, um, you know, that it's, it's something I don't think it's talked about enough, but it, it needs to be more so like, we, we get wrapped up in the weeds of the technology. Let's, um, <clears throat> let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, we've, we've, you know, we've talked about monoliths. We've been talking about the thing that's, you know, in many cases, sort of the, the system of record, what drives people's business. Um, let's talk a little bit about microservices, right? Because we're seeing, you know, like we've seen as people move to, to mobile, they move to IoT, they move to these sort of systems of engagement where, you know, moving quickly or maybe just having smaller systems to engage is a, is a more appropriate fit. Where, where is the Java community in terms of microservices these days in terms of, uh, you know, sometimes we hear about you know, the Spring Framework is evolving. We hear about Netflix OSS doing things, but, but there's other stuff as well. Where, where is the Java community these days? Well, inside the Java community, we've been very, very fortunate to have had uh, essentially a leader, if you will, kind of show us the way. And, and that's probably overemphasizing it. But in the case of Netflix OSS, you know, we actually had – uh, Netflix, you know, we run a third of the global internet traffic, Netflix, because uh, that's actually how they begin their presentations. Yeah. You know, we're for real. Um, here's our framework for doing microservices like we've done at Netflix. And there's there's a couple elements to that architecture, that framework that were absolutely brilliant. And the, the funny part was these existed before, but it's very common, at least within the Java community. And I would say in the .NET and Node community, et cetera, you know, the least communities I look at from a programming standpoint is you kind of need that branded open source project to open our eyes to this brave new world. And this has been historical. Like if you, you look, look at the pattern called micro, um, sorry, model, model view controller, MVC, right? That existed since the early days of small talk. You know, before we saw it in Apache Struts, it preexisted that world by, you know, 10, 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until Apache Struts that the world the, was gone, understood it. And got their head around it. And now we're still in love with MVC to this day. You know, with like AngularJS is a good example. Just another MVC implementation. And then we actually had the world of ORM, right? Object Relational Mapping. Again, that world existed in the 90s. It, it was there, right? There was vendors charging $80,000 per server for Object Relational Mapping software. But then in the Java community, we had Hibernate, the open source project called Hibernate. And it was born and we, we loved it and we understood it and we got our heads around Object Relational Mapping. Same with Inversion and Control and Dependency Injection. That was Spring, right? We've seen these paradigms. And so what, what we saw with the Netflix world was they said, okay, here's microservices, and we talked all about the properties of microservices, and they gave us one specific project that was mind-blowing and another standard-setting project, that's the Hystrix project. They basically demonstrated how a circuit breaker and a bulkhead should actually work. 
Now, both those patterns were previously documented in a book from like 2005, right? And a relatively old book at this point. Um, but, and, and the funny thing about that book, it's a great book, by the way, if you read it. And I'll, I'll provide the name. We'll get it in the show notes. Uh, it's called Release It. But it, it actually gives you all these great horror stories about how things were broken in various airlines and other Java applications. And it's really Java E and kind of a Java 5 kind of book, or it's really J2EE and Java 5 book. But the concept of Circuit Breaker and Bulkhead were game-changing for us yet again, right? Hystrix showed us that you can actually connect A to B to C to D, and if D fails, it doesn't have a cascading failure rolling up that entire chain, breaking C, breaking B, breaking A, right? Your microservices can still independently be resilient in that distributed architecture. So, yeah, that's really what we're seeing right now in the Java community. People have really gotten excited about what has come out of Netflix OSS, whether it's been Eureka, Ribbon, or Hystrix. In the case of Eureka and Ribbon, though, you can can do those same things with Kubernetes. You don't actually need Eureka and Ribbon. But Hystrix, which is the bulkhead and circuit breaker, is pretty game-changing. There will be more. What always happens in the Java community in particular, someone else will come up with their own circuit breaker and bulkhead, I'm sure, and we'll call that something else. But I imagine Hystrix will kind of be the king for a while longer. And then we've also seen uh, in the Spring community, uh, not only did they deliver Spring Boot for generic web applications, Java web applications with embedded Tomcat several years ago, but they then adapted into this new world of microservices by basically adding things like Spring Cloud, which wraps the Netflix OSS libraries like Hystrix, Eureka, Ribbon, uh, and things of that nature. So it really has in our in our Java community, at least, it's really fairly mature at this point. There, there's numerous frameworks, tools, technologies, you know, written documentation, lots of examples now. You know, it's fairly obvious as to how you would go about a Java-based microservices architecture. Right, <clears throat> right. Now, as you as you talk to developers who you know are obviously you know trying to put this in place, um, you know, deal with it in their in their own companies. <clears throat> do you get that they they um, how are they doing in in the sense of, you know, on, on one hand, you you could take any application and say, hey, we want to evolve our process towards DevOps, right? This idea that you know it's it's a cleaner path between writing code, deploying code, you know, that types of thing, uh, which you could, like you said, you could do with any type of application, whether it's a monolith or a microservice. And and the challenges that that sort of come with microservices, because you know when you start saying uh, every microservice is going to be independent, it's going to be reachable with an API, which means we're now going to involve the network, uh, you know, instead of an RPC, right? You, you you've introduced a lot more kind of coordination challenges just at an application level. Where do you see this sort of intersection between? You know, DevOps, which is sort of the the people coordination, and now microservices, which is you, you know, it's got benefits, but it also has challenges in terms of, of the application coordination. Uh, microservices definitely comes at a cost to your software architecture and your software development teams, and you have to decide is that cost worth it. Uh, so. Before you introduce distributed computing into your architecture, you need to really carefully consider uh, consider that cost that's going to be associated with it. Because you, you, now you need a circuit breaker and a bulkhead, and now you have to deal with these independent teams deploying independently where if uh, basically B is doing an update right now and A that calls B, is A going to fail, right? If we have a circuit breaker, no, A doesn't fail, but A doesn't behave correctly either because B is doing an update. So do we need some form of rolling update capability on that second microservice? And therefore, we need something like a Kubernetes as an example. So all these things are kind of intertwined. So I often like to present the concept uh, as going through a journey. And I use this evolutionary slide that I use, right? It has like an amoeba on the far left and a unicorn on the far right. And there's all these stages in between. You know, I want to go from an amoeba 
to be a fully evolved, you know, slug slash fish slash monkey to a unicorn. <laughs> and, um, and, and I, so the unicorn stage is I'm doing a hundred deploys per day. Everything is fully automated. You know, everything is amazing. We have all these two pizza teams, but you know, there's, it's a journey to get there. And so like the first stage of that journey, the one thing I often talk about with people and I ask questions of my audiences, you know, the developers in the room with me, I ask them, how long does it take you to get a VM when you need a new resource? So you as a programmer, you as a software professional, whether it be even an operator or a developer or architect, whatever, you're an expensive resource to your business in most cases. You're not cheap, right? Yep. Hopefully you're not cheap. Yep. How many weeks are you waiting to get a single resource so you can do your job like a virtual machine? In most cases, it's three plus weeks, right, on average for people to wait to get a resource so they can do their job, which is kind of mind-blowing at this day and age if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so having that self-service on-demand elastic infrastructure, you know, some people refer to this as infrastructure as code, right, What, however you want to say it, having access through an API, through a self-service portal, whatever it is, so I can get access to the resources I need right now is super critical and, and in my mind, the first step on that journey. But also there are the concepts of DevOps, right? And DevOps is more about cultural change and process and people than it is about technology. You know, or can you reorganize your organization around the DevOps principles and practices? I think that's super critical. And that's a, a big step on the journey. And the crazy thing is if you just do those first two things, right? We have elastic infrastructure as code that's API-driven, self-service, and on-demand. And we now have DevOps within our organization. You're going to be so much faster and so much better off and so much happier with that new model long before you ever get to microservices, right? Yeah. And and then you got to think in terms of CICD and you got to think in terms of automation, whether it be Puppet Chef or Ansible. You got to think in terms of your container strategy and container usage. But, you know, even CI, CI is a, a great example where everybody thinks they're doing CI already, you know, continuous integration. And they all have Jenkins, right? You know, so in a lot of our Java audiences, 80 to 90% of the audience is already using Jenkins. So therefore, it, here's the downside with having a branded open source project kind of become the de facto standard, you know, like Hystrix is circuit breaker or Hibernate is object relational mapping. Um, you know, in this case, Jenkins equals CI, right? You know, that's yep. the pattern. Yep. And and the problem is everyone who thinks they've done Jenkins thinks they're doing CI, and which and turns out it's not true. Like I love Jez Humble's test, you know, the guy who wrote the book on this topic, yep. right? And his test, you know, his test is basically, you know, what you check in uh, head is always ready for production, right? What's basically in trunk or head in that source repo is always ready for production. And every developer checks in every day at a minimum, right? So, you know, if you think of those two tests, and he actually has another test in there that is the, and if the build breaks, it is fixed within 10 minutes. And so if you ask your audiences and if you ask yourself for that matter, you know, if is that true of your organization, true of your project, is head or trunk always ready for production? Do all developers always check into head or trunk every day? And if the build does break, it is all hands on deck to fix the bill within 10 minutes. The, like I do a show of hands kind of, you know, in my presentations, you'll have 90% of the hands go up. Yes, we're doing CI. And then as you ask those three questions, you get down to two hands in the 100 person audience pretty quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, a sort of the, it's sort of the equivalent of saying, like, you know, <clears throat> we're putting on a play and, and any individual has, has learned their, their lines. But until you really do like a, a full dress rehearsal, you don't really know if you're if you're prepared to, to sort of do continuous integration. You're just you know, you've just got a uh, an open uh, uh, source repository to be able to push code. And, and there's a huge difference between I can put code in the source repository and that code is ready to, to go do some some productive things. 
Absolutely. You, in other words, you have to have a level of confidence in my mind, right? Yeah. What is the level of confidence around the quality of that code that was checked in on a regular, you know, a regular basis, a repeatable basis, you know, and that does mean you've got a lot more automated testing. You have a lot more discipline within the uh, uh, team overall, right? And how you actually bring code into, into that production pipeline. Yep. Yep. You, you know, you, you make an important point, um, kind of going back to, you know, the two things you said, you know, you've got to have kind of elastic, scalable infrastructure, um, you know, I think as I think back on this, um, you know, and, and this sort of points to why we're seeing uh, containers uh, get more traction. We're seeing Kubernetes get more traction. You know, when when VMs were sort of taking off, they were solving a problem, which was IT is essentially kind of efficient, right? Inefficient, excuse me. Uh, you know, like they're, they're spending too much money on inefficient resources and, and VMs were a way to, to better utilize like compute resources, for example. So people all of a sudden were like, oh, great, I'm, I'm saving money. Uh, it solves that problem. But, but that problem wasn't addressing, I want to build software faster. And, and what you see with, with containers and what you see with Kubernetes and some of the things that are inherently built into those frameworks. So, you know, self-service ability to, to get to those resources, the ability to, to describe the resources and say, hey, give me X amount of resources all the time and, and burst up to this. Like that wasn't really kind of native to what went on in, in VMs, but we're seeing uh, the, the container community, the Kubernetes community evolve quickly because their, their problem they're trying to solve now is, is that core thing you were saying, I need to give developers the ability to go fast, right? They now have a business need to go fast. Hence, I have to give you infrastructure to go fast. And I think that's the way to think about connecting those dots, which is, you know, start the business. Business wants to go faster. They want better quality. The developers need, you know, no friction, limited friction. Like you said, I don't want to waste wait a month. And so hence why we're seeing this evolution of, of the infrastructure in this way, as opposed to just, you know, maybe like better VMs or something. And uh, so listen, um, let me, let me wrap this up because we're, we're kind of uh, getting towards the end of the show. Um, it, you know, as you're talking to people and they're saying, Hey, Burr, enjoyed the talk, uh, you know, we'll, we'll catch up to you the next time, but, but give me a couple of tips for just making my Java world better. What are, what are those two or three things that you're giving everybody and, and just saying like, here's the hygiene you, you got to do? In many cases, it does fall back on the concept that you want to be more responsive to your business needs, you know, your actual customers. And the only way to learn is by getting your software into production faster. And if you think about it from a developer standpoint, you're a creator, you're a maker, you've actually built something. And when you were in school and you wrote that code, you could immediately run it and maybe show it to your teammates, your students, you know, your fellow students, show it to your professor, get the grade. And, and that was amazing. You felt good. You actually put it in production. And I think that's the thing we've lost over the last decade of professional career for these average Java developers who came out of college and have been stuck in this big old, uh, you know, monolithic organization for so many years. Now they write code and it goes through this ungodly pipeline that takes six to nine months to get to production. And here's the crazy part. That developer wrote that code is on a different project, you know, three months before it even lands in production. He never or she never actually gets to see their code really run and see it really behave. And I've I want to say that that is the fundamental aspect of all of this stuff at this point. We want to we as developers want to be vastly more accountable and we want to see our babies run. 
we built this thing. We we should have some pride in the workmanship and the craftsmanship that we applied to it, and we want it to run. And if it has misbehavior or odd behaviors in production, we want to know, and we want to have the fast cycle time to fix it, respond to it, and continuously improve it. And I think that's it at the end of the day. Yeah, there's all these great tools and frameworks. You know, there's all this great stuff from Netflix OSS or the Spring community. There's other great frameworks like Vertex, which is one of my you know favorite technologies right now. Vertex for reactive programming and reactive microservices. But you know, it's just those are all just independent tools and frameworks and and techniques. At the end of the day, you know, the the philosophical aspect has to be: I want to do a vastly better job than I'm doing today, and I want to move faster. And oh, by the way, it's actually safer to move faster than slower, right? That's a point I often make with my audiences. To think about those critical vulnerabilities that you have in your application stack, either in the Spring framework itself, or in the application server, or in the uh, you know JVM, or in the operating system. You know, people now, based on our monolithic approach to the to the huge ungodly pipeline, right? They have they have serious um, vulnerabilities and flaws in their application stack for six to nine months at a time because that is their deployment cycle, six yep. to nine months. Yep. You know, so just fixing that is a huge win. Yeah, no, I like that, and I and I like that it's you know start from how do you get it into production faster and and sort of work backwards from hey, okay, if that's our new philosophy, what, what does that mean? And and you've taken. You've taken some of the the religious bias, technology religion bias, sort of out of the picture. I mean, that'll come come back in. But if you start with that, you know, solve the business problem of, of I want to get things in front of our customers faster. I want to be able to iterate on it. Uh, I think that's great, uh, great sort of advice for people. Real quick, um, you know, where can people? You know, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning where you're going to be, but where can people find you, or how can people reach out to you, say on on Twitter or other places if they want to they want to talk about this some more. Yeah, they can certainly find me on Twitter. I try to be as active on Twitter as possible. So I'm at Burr Sutter, B-U-R-R-S-U-T-T-E-R. And that's an easy way to interact with me and find me. And of course, as I'm traveling around the globe speaking at different conferences, there'll be Twitter activity associated with that. That's that's the primary channel for me. You can also just email me, B-U-R-R at redhat.com. Uh, I get a lot of emails, so maybe you have to email me twice kind of thing, but you know, feel free to reach out to me from that perspective. And then we also do a lot of blogging. Um, uh, my team and the, the people associated with my efforts with here within Red Hat, uh, we go at developers.redhat.com slash blog or developers.redhat.com is our website and slash blog is where we actually put up blogs like the one we mentioned earlier around the you know three-month to one-week cycle time with a specific uh, financial services organization called KeyBank, right? We actually – have that that story written down, if you will, for people to actually see how that fast-moving monolith was done. Very cool. Well, Bert, thank you very much for the time that I really enjoyed the conversation. Like the sort of the the, the pragmatism of it and, and kind of the, the structure of it. I think it gives people a lot of stuff to think about, especially in in the realities of their world. So, folks, uh, for Burr and for Aaron, everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.